0: Hello, everyone. Today I'm going to replay a presentation I did at IBM's offices in New York City in November 2019 on embedding artificial intelligence in financial planning and analysis made easy. It was really intended to be a primer on how to infuse artificial intelligence or AI into financial and operational planning processes. The presentation started since I was in New York City in the pre-COVID-19
1: days with a top topic I hoped everyone could relate to, traffic. Or specifically, automobile traffic. There wasn't much of it in the year 1900.
0: A New York Times article I found mentions that the automobile caught on first with upper crust types and that of the 8,000 cars in the United States in the year 1900, nearly a third were owned by New Yorkers. So I found a graph that shows car ownership rates in the U.S., and starting in 1908, car ownership began to go through the roof. There's a photo of Fifth Avenue in New York City in 1900, in which pretty much all the traffic is horse-drawn, but by
1: 1913, the same Fifth Avenue, it's all cars. So, what happened? Well, basically, the Model T Ford happened,
0: of course. It was the first mass produced and affordable car, and it rolled off the production line in 1908 for the first time. And as we all know from Economics 101, lower price means more demand. And more demand means more cars. And more cars means more people traveling further which leads to highways and motels and destination resorts and suburbs and uber and much more in other words cheap changes everything this comes from a book called prediction machines by agrawal gans and who are economists i highly recommend it in this book they apply this basic economics concept that lower prices create more demand to AI technologies. The premise is that thanks to technology innovation, including Moore's law, computers getting faster, being able to pack more processor cores onto the same piece of silicon for less and less money, unlimited storage in the cloud, and so on, the cost of computational power has dropped significantly. And what can AI do with all that cheap computational power? It uses it to ingest data, lots and lots of data, and then find patterns in that data to make
1: predictions. So, more data means better predictions. No data means poor predictions. Now, what do I mean by
0: making predictions? Well, when Netflix recommends movies that you might like, it's basically making a prediction based on data collected from millions of movie watchers who have similar movie watching habits to yours. When one of Google's self-driving cars makes a turn, it is predicting that the turn can be made safely based on millions of data points combining sensor and location data. Most of the underlying theory for doing AI has been around for ages, but without the computing power and data storage to handle these vast quantities of data, it was really mostly for science experiments. But now we have the computing power And we have cheap storage, plus
1: the advent of new deep learning algorithms, and suddenly everything has changed. When you think about it, prediction is really just about filling in missing
0: information. It takes the information you have, which is your data, and uses it to generate the information you don't have, which is your prediction. It's important to be clear about the goal, which is prediction. For example, a predictive forecast to be used for business planning purposes. The means, that is how you get to the goal of prediction, is AI, artificial intelligence. Think about AI like an engine that spits out predictions. And the fuel for that engine, which is critical, is data. Remember, more data means better predictions. Not enough data, less good predictions. Let's briefly clarify something else because we often see phrases like AI and machine learning and predictive analytics and predictive algorithms being thrown around in confusing ways. First, AI and machine learning are not different things. Machine learning is really just one branch of AI, but it's a very big branch. It includes algorithms like neural nets, which are like models of neurons in the human brain that can be trained. They start knowing nothing, But then if you show them lots of pictures of cats, for example, eventually they can learn to identify a cat or pick out a specific cat. You can think of deep learning as a special extension of the neural net idea. Now, not all AI is machine learning. AI applications that I wouldn't think of as pure machine learning would be things like natural language processing or something like chatbots. Now, they can have bits of machine learning in them to drive the conversation, but they also have to do things like pause your speech into words, maybe do some topic modeling. And these are AI techniques that aren't strictly machine learning. So machine learning is a big branch of AI. And within this branch, you'll hear about unsupervised learning versus supervised learning. Now, unsupervised learning is when you just let the AI find patterns on its own, which is useful, for example, for categorizing data or when people talk about the dream of having a machine that can learn on its own like a child, that would be a dream related to unsupervised learning. Supervised learning is when you train a model by tagging data with the right answer. For example, you train your model on cat pictures so that it will be able to recognize a cat picture it has never seen before. Now predictive analytics, or predictive algorithms, which is the sub-branch of the sub-branch of AI that we're going to talk about today is a form of supervised learning. In fact, we use it to predict what future demand for our products will be based on what actual demand has been in
1: the past. Now, this is not the only application, but it's the one I'm going to keep coming back to today. Now, this is a pretty hot topic in financial and operational planning.
0: One example is a November 2018 survey from the analyst firm Gartner, where 554 finance leaders, CFOs and so on, were surveyed. And in that survey, 49% of respondents said that predictive analytics was a top finance technology initiative, while a further 28% named AI and machine learning, which as we heard earlier, are the same kind of thing. Now, we're experiencing in our own practice at Qubit, um, predictive analytics is moving way past the bleeding edge to the mainstream, just about. It won't be long before the question really is, can you afford to fall too far behind? And here's a very important point. You can't just look at it like a technology investment. It's really about digital transformation of your internal processes. And digital transformation is about looking at people, processes, and technology holistically. So thinking back to the automobile example I gave you earlier, automobiles or cars weren't only successful because more people could suddenly afford them. You needed to teach people how to drive, and you needed to introduce rules of the road, and so on. So if you want to use prediction to improve the quality of your forecast, you are also going to have to look at the whole value chain. What data do you have going into your predictive model? And once your model has made a prediction, what are you going to do with it? And are you going to stop there? Are you going to say it's one or done? Or are you going to incorporate into your process the means to keep improving your model? For example, let's say you only have access to data at the product level today. Maybe that's good enough to get started. But in the meantime, you could work on getting data at the more detailed customer level. And then when that's ready, it in and then make it part of your process process to keep adjusting your process in an agile way and keep iterating think of digital transformation as
1: a journey with lots of little incremental steps now we could talk about ai
0: applications all day but now i want to narrow it down to forecasting with XPNA, which refers to extended planning and analysis, including financial planning and analysis, operational planning and analysis, and ideally integrated planning and analysis, which is truly cross functional planning across the silos of your business. In demand or revenue planning, you are typically predicting future units or revenue based on historical data. Ideally, you will have lots of historical data down to the lowest level of detail by product code, or SKU, or by store, or even by customer and channel. Now you'll also be doing time series forecasting on time series data. Time series data simply means that the data is equally spaced. It can be monthly data, weekly data, daily data, and so on. It's important to note this because the structure of the data is fundamental to how you analyze it. And that's the structure that we expect in a predictive demand planning application. Now, you are not limited to predicting demand in terms of units of revenue. And let's not forget that once you have units, you can get to revenue by multiplying units by pricing assumptions, which is an approach that opens up other scenario planning opportunities that I won't get into today. But depending on what drives the business you're in and how you model it, you could use predictive algorithms on expenses or even account balances. One common use case is to use it for anomaly detection. Let's say you are a manufacturer and your plant managers submit expense plans at some level of detail. If you have a predictive model that predicts expense levels by plant and account based on historical data, you can easily automate identifying exceptions simply by looking for values that diverge greatly from the predicted values. That saves you a ton of time when reviewing submitted plans because you have narrowed the range of things you need to look at. So, generally speaking, you can look at what historical data you have for all sorts of use cases to see whether you can build a model to predict what it will be in the future. But let's get back to today's topic, which is to use historical demand data to create statistically grounded forecasts that can then be operationalized. Operationalization is very important.
1: If you don't have a way to use these predictive models in real life, it's frankly all a waste of time. So, in other words, if you're going to go down this path, the first thing you need to do
0: is be open to change. So, for example, suppose you forecast by region and product category, and then you do the analysis and look back and compare with actuals, and you find your accuracy has been pretty good. I'd be the first one to recommend you be aware of the law of diminishing returns. Putting a lot more time and money into building a more elaborate model in Excel or whatever tool you use to get just a teeny accuracy improvement is just not worth it. But here's where AI can be a game changer. Let's suppose your product category includes hundred different products. And if you were to drill down, it turns out that you are under forecasting 20 of your lower priced products, but this is being masked because you are wildly over forecasting one more expensive product. What opportunities are you missing by not realizing that? Are you building up a ton of unsold inventory for the one more expensive product? And when you use AI or predictive analytics algorithms, each individual item at the lowest level of detail is forecast individually based on its own unique historical patterns. And each item can be influenced by its own relationships to other data. For example, the spend on marketing campaigns or discounts and promotions or even changes in pricing can all influence your revenue forecast in a significant way. These would be examples of internal drivers and are examples of data you probably already have internally that can help you make better predictions. And then there may be external data that are relevant, like macroeconomic data or demographic data, vendor or supply data, and so on. For good predictions, you want the relationship between your causal drivers to be as highly correlated with the target of your forecast whether it's revenue or units or whatever, as possible. If you have aggregated data, you significantly weaken the correlation and thus the predictive power. It's like trying to correlate a promotion on blueberries in a grocery store to the performance of the
1: whole store. That's going to give you a very weak predictive relationship. So to summarize, if there is a better way
0: or a way to get a better forecast at a lower level of detail that isn't going to require more work, why wouldn't you do it? But you probably do have more detail available than you realize, or it might not be as hard to get detailed data as you think, you just never asked for it. And it's not one and done, as I said earlier. You can
1: get started with what you have, and then you can plan incrementally to make it better over time. So let's say you have a good chunk of historical data to work with. You can then start building a predictive model. Now,
0: from a practical point of view, we'd recommend a minimum of three years of history, but more is better. That's based on Qubit's real-life experience with real-life customers. Now, let's talk about some of the considerations that you need to take into account specifically when you are building a a predictive model for XTNA. If you are doing other kinds of AI, like building a chatbot, these would not be your top priority. So let's start with seasonality. We talked about how this is time series data, and the challenge is, how do you account for periodicity and cycles in the data? The pattern and cycles can be different from one product to another, and may also be impacted by whether it's a new product or a mature one, and so on. there are techniques to do things like seasonal decomposition and separate out the trend from the seasonality effect. We talked about incorporating internal and external causal predictors into the model. And these can further be separated into ones that have short-term effects and others that have long-term effects on trend. Short-term effects might be things like marketing promotions or supply chain shortfalls. And long-term effects may be consumer confidence or competition-related. Again, the goal is to be able to separate out the effect of these causal predictors from the underlying trend. But it's also important not to force them into the model. Sometimes a customer will have an idea about what's driving their business that the data doesn't support. So when we help people build these models, we're very careful to look for things like this. Sometimes, all the computing power in the world isn't going to get you a better result than a linear trend or a moving average projection or some other naive forecasting method. So that's got to be in the mix, too. Remember, each product may require a different approach depending on its pattern, and there are ways of automatically having the model decide which approach to go with based on the pattern that history provides. Now lagging happens when something you do now causes an effect in the future. This is also time series related. It's the relationship where the data point in January is related to the data point in December and so on. So for example, you hire more salespeople today, but sales don't go up until next quarter because they need to be trained and because of the length of sales cycle. Or if you have a production issue today, Um, For example, um, there might be a COVID-19 pandemic. Um, You might miss your number three months from now. Since this is intuitively true for many cause-and-effect relationships, it's very important to take lagging into account.
1: Last but not least, let's talk about outliers. Life can be pretty random, and sometimes one-off things happen,
0: like earthquakes. Or acquisitions, or plant shutdowns, or sadly, pandemics. Events like this can introduce anomalies to your data which need to be excluded from your predictive model going forward. Now, this is a pretty high level overview, and for each of these considerations, there are different algorithms and statistical techniques that can be applied. For example, you may have heard of ARIMA or neural nets or other algorithms. The trick is to use the ones that are the best fit for the specific business problem. Now, when Qubit talks about its predictive demand planning solutions, what it's basically doing is automating the selection and application of appropriate algorithms to deal with these situations. It's not complete plug and play, but it gets you there a lot quicker. And we're able to do this because we have narrowed our domain area to financial
1: and operational demand forecasting, which we know quite a bit about. And there is more. When you add in a powerful
0: planning and modeling platform like IBM Planning Analytics powered by TM1, you get more. This is a situation where the whole is more than the sum of its parts. Yes, Planning Analytics can be a data source, not necessarily the only one if you have a more complex data landscape. Um, And Planning Analytics can be a place to store your predictive forecast. But that's only the tip of the iceberg because now you can leverage all the other great stuff that Planning Analytics does for free, like using predicted values to drive your driver-based models. For example, if you predict unit sales, you can drive revenue, cost of goods sold, and gross margin. It can flow into your balance sheet model and impact your cash forecast. You can play what-if games with currency exchange rates, so you can hedge in uncertain times. Like, um, Having great UI options for dashboarding and direct pulls to Excel. Or another benefit, like storing in different versions and scenarios so you can compare them and play what-if games. And what about the problem of collaboration? What if your operational plan and financial plan are happening in isolation, which, by the way, is still the norm. So not just one set of people, but two sets of people are burning the midnight oil to do the best plan possible within their silo. And then once they've done that, they need to sit through a bunch of reconciliation meetings to figure out what the plan really is. How many people really need another meeting in their lives? So the game changer here is that if you have the AI produce a
1: detailed shared baseline forecast of units of demand that's used by everyone, then
0: instead of burning hours just to come up with the thing, which is probably going to be way off anyway, you can use those hours to really analyze it, focus on the big items, and think about strategy. So we're really not talking about replacing people here. We're talking about taking the drudgery away. So
1: doesn't that sound great? Um, well, it is great, but there is a but. And the academic term for the but is algorithm aversion.
0: Now, if you Google algorithm aversion, all sorts of stuff will come up. Some of it will be kind of arrogant, as in why are people so dumb? But actually, if you think about it, it's not dumb at all. First of all, we have already established that AI is really not magic, and it's not immune to bias because someone chose what data to feed it. And certainly, In our supervised learning predictive analytics scenario, um, they not only chose what data to feed it, they also chose what algorithms to use to produce the prediction. Different algorithms will be more or less accurate in different situations. So let's say you're using a less accurate algorithm unknowingly, how much should you trust it? I don't want to get too far off track. This is not about trusting or not trusting. It's about getting more accurate forecasts in a way that is useful and valuable to people and companies. And it doesn't really matter how accurate your forecast is if no one wants to use it.
1: So you simply have to address the issue, which we recommend you do. So to overcome algorithm
0: aversion, what it boils down to is interactivity and accountability. So, interactivity is where you present your forecaster with a system-generated forecast as a baseline or a starting point. They can use a planning analytics workspace dashboard to quickly eyeball it for reasonableness by product category or by region or whatever. And then you can give them options. For example, you might give them options to interact with the predictive model, for example, by tweaking pricing for some product and rerunning the predictive forecast for that product based on the tweak or you can give them an option to layer on changes they want to make. There is no way the AI is going to know from history that you're planning to open a new store and make a big investment push in, say, Texas. Now, accountability is where you measure performance. Forecast Value Add, or SVA for short, is a metric that measures the accuracy of the different forecasts against actuals as they come in over time. It serves a couple of very important purposes to validate and build trust in the system or the predicted forecast. Obviously, if it is not very good, it is important to find out why. And it's also important to initiate conversations with forecasters. Suppose they prefer to ignore the system forecast and do their own thing, but it's not leading to more accuracy. Why is that? When you measure forecast value add, you can. Um, demonstrate what's really going on. So this is another area where linking
1: up to a planning platform like IBM Planning Analytics can be very helpful. In Qubit's predictive demand planning solution, we show
0: forecast value add on a dashboard with rich visualization. The dashboard shows you all your forecast scenarios and displays your forecast value add metric for each forecast scenario over time. It shows you the dashboard for all geographies and products and aggregates, or you can drill down to a specific geography or a specific product or product grouping um, all the way down to the lowest level of detail. The dashboard allows a forecaster to go in manually and modify a forecast or forecast assumptions and then rerun the prediction based on those changes. Part of the digital transformation piece of this that I talked about before, is that now you have this tool, you need to incorporate it into your regular cadence for analysis and discussion. The point is not to ding someone for a poor forecast value or ad score, but to use this to highlight places where a conversation might be of value. Maybe this resulted in some
1: inventory buildup that turned out not to be necessary, for example. What can be learned from that? So, to recap, the goal here is
0: really to increase the accuracy of a baseline forecast and reduce the amount of human effort that goes into it. More accuracy is, of course, beneficial and lets you plan
1: better and be more lean and so on, But even if your accuracy is not better, but just the same, but takes much less effort, there is still huge value. So, for example, if you
0: can show that having your salespeople spending hours and hours working on forecasts does nothing to improve accuracy, then stop doing it. Maybe it would be better if you let the system generate a forecast and have the salespeople take customers out to lunch instead. Now, it also helps you reduce human bias from your planning process. It doesn't take it out altogether because, as I said earlier, there is inherent bias potentially in your data and in the algorithms that you choose. But even so, the combination of tracking forecast accuracy and having a system-generated forecast helps you stop the sandbaggers who like to set the bar low so they can always meet their targets, and also the optimistic aspirational planners, which every company has. Now, the third point is really important. Remember that new technology is not going to make much of a difference if it isn't accompanied by digital transformation of your business processes. But new technology can be an awesome catalyst to make that transformation happen. It's still more often than... It's still more common than not, based on what we see at our clients, for the financial, operational, and sales plans to be done separately. You put sandbagging, aspirations, and politics into a big mixing bowl, and you end up with a huge time sink. With a provably accurate predictive forecast, you can have an objective starting point for, say, demand, and you can then use that to push the discussion and negotiations in a more constructive and strategic direction. Where should we invest? How many people
1: do we need? Are there savings to be found in the supply chain? And so on. So at the end of the day, if you already have invested
0: in a planning software platform like IBM Planning Analytics, that's really brought you to a better place than the old days when you might have just been doing everything in Excel. That's a very good place to be, and it really puts you ahead of the curve. However, even if you've gotten that far, this is really the new frontier. You can't rest on your laurels. You can still get better. And with predictive analytics becoming
1: mainstream, I don't think you can afford to not think about it. So here are some tips to get started. If you haven't started looking at predictive analytics
0: for your financial and operational forecasting, you really should. And you will be surprised at how close you are to making it happen. If you have three years of data, and I know that most Qubit customers that we have helped build build planning systems for have three years of data. And if you have that open mind I talked about, then, well, why don't you explore getting started? And um, I know I keep mentioning digital transformation, but this is a very important piece and it's extremely important to pay attention to the word incremental, which is part of it. We're not saying the word incremental to make it seem less scary. I'm saying it because incremental is the right way to do it and to be successful in our experience. It's really common sense. You don't know what you don't know. You never can. So if you try to make a big elaborate plan and secure a humongous budget to execute on it, what do you do when you discover, for example, that some assumptions you have about your data turn out to be false? This happens all the time. Could be that the customer field is not validated or the production line statistics aren't being stored or the biggest business unit is still on some old version of the ERP system and still can't get it back together. So what works in real life, in Qubit's experience, is to learn from the software development or design thinking worlds and take an agile and iterative approach. So at each iteration, you get to a better place and you will
1: have learned lessons, Sometimes you'll fail, but that's okay. You will learn from the failure too, and you'll keep moving forward. So this was a replay of a presentation I gave in November, 2019.
0: If you happen to be listening to this in the first half of 2020 in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, you would be right to wonder how much of this is relevant. After all, machine learning and predictive algorithms use patterns from the past to predict the future, and we know that our immediate future is likely, frankly, a complete break from past patterns, whether you are suddenly in a business where demand has collapsed or having the opposite problem where demand far exceeds capacity. Qubit will be hosting a webinar to address this specific question on Thursday, April 28, 2020. It's called Recommendations for Planning and Forecasting in a COVID-19 World. And you can get more information and sign up at qubit.com forward slash events. That's Q-U-E-B-I-T.com forward slash events. Now, if it's after April 28th and you missed it, just email us at info at qubit.com and we'll send you a link to the recording. Thank you for listening.